This is Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine. The project makes a case that you don't often hear in history textbooks, that slavery was foundational to America. So it wasn't surprising that we ignited a fierce debate among historians about these issues. But that's the power of the New York Times, to spark an important dialogue with bold, rigorous reporting that forces us to examine our assumptions. To learn more, go to nytimes.com slash worth it. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, the Greeks gave us the word aristocracy. It takes its root from aristo, meaning best, and kratos, meaning rule or power. And for more than 500 years, Britain was ruled by a class that was defined or defined itself at the time as the best. They founded their ascendancy on the twin pillars of land and heredity, and in terms of privilege, preferment, power, style and wealth, they dominated British society. As the Earl of Chesterfield confidently informed the House of Lords in the mid-18th century, quote, We, my lords, may thank heaven that we have something better than our brains to depend upon. So what made the British aristocracy the most successful power elite in the world, and what brought about their decline? With me to discuss the rise and fall of the British ruling class is David Canadine, Director of the University of London's Institute of Historical Research, Rosemary Sweet, Lecturer in History at the University of Leicester, and Felipe fernandez Amesto, Professorial Research Fellow at Queen Mary College, London. David Canadine, first of all, in broad terms, uh, how did uh, the aristocracy, let's take it from, say, a thousand years ago, how did it grow from the time of the Norman invasion? Well, if we're taking uh, the English and, I suppose, latterly British aristocracy, then we need to remember, as your opening remarks suggest, that it's tied essentially to land. Uh, Land underpins uh, wealth, land underpins political power, and land underpins high social status. And also, of course, uh, to take it from the Norman Conquest, the other element in the early English aristocracy, the first half of your millennium, uh, is, of course, military service, uh, knightly prowess, chivalry, war, fighting, uh, biffing each other and biffing foreigners and all of that. Um, And so I suppose the the feudal origins, if we could put it that way, of our nation's aristocracy lie in that interconnection uh, between land and wealth uh, and military power and military activity. Could Could we describe them as almost a sort of warrior class? And those early stages? I think in the first instance we could. That is to say that they live and die by the sword. Uh, They're men on horseback, and that's enormously important. The horse is the great military engine of power, in a way. The horse is also, of course, an agrarian creature, and that ties together uh, the land and fighting. Um, But, of course, it's also the case that when they're on the winning side, as on the whole they try to be, um, if they are on the winning side, they get rewarded with land. So that's the way in which military activity uh, and landed possessions, which are the defining characteristics, in a way, of the early aristocracy, actually come together. Is there a sense in which when William laid down uh, his Norman state in this country and gave away these massive lands, or took the massive lands from the existing people and gave them to his own... Uh, chums. Uh, did that set out the template? Was did that? Did we build on that for the next nine hundred years, or till today even? I think in many ways we did. That is, it was a template which assumed 
that the king's right-hand men were landowners, uh, were powerful figures in the localities and in the nation, um, and were also wealthy people of high social prestige. And in a sense, that is an aristocratic template, uh, further reinforced by the notion that these positions, ownership of land, high social standing, wealth, power, were transferred on a hereditary basis. That is to say, when somebody died, uh, their son inherited the title, the land, uh, the public position. And those are, of course, the ways in which aristocracy worked and the ways in which, in some senses, perhaps even to this day, in some senses, in an attenuated form, it still does. Is there a sense in which the, the monarch at that time could be called loosely primus inter pares? Yes, I think that there was a, a close sense of connection between the monarch and the great magnates, in part because the monarch relied on these people for his military support, in part because he rewarded them appropriately. And, of course, that notion survives to this day. The Queen, to this day, in official communications, I think, refers to dukes, not just royal dukes, but non-royal dukes, as her right trusty and well-beloved cousins, and that sense that these are people, in some sense, who share an identity based on high social rank and wealth and titles still persists. And then it gathered around itself chivalric ideas and so on and so forth. But what happened to it in the Civil War, Rosemary Sweet? Well, in the Civil War, the majority of the aristocracy, of course, came out on the side of Charles I, that they had, prior to the actual outbreak of conflict, there had been a certain number who had tried to curb some of Charles I's more absolutist tendencies, um, worrying that he wasn't behaving as primus inter pares, that he wasn't um, paying heed to his natural counsellors, and one of the leading opponents was the um, Duke of Bedford. But when it actually came to the crunch, the majority of the aristocracy actually came out in support of Charles I because they had this basic... Um, compatibility of interests, that these are the natural elite and that their interests were naturally aligned with the monarchy. And so they suffered with the king and they had to sacrifice their estates to help the king prosecute his war. And of course, when it came to the interregnum, the House of Lords was abolished. And it's only with the restoration that their fortunes could similarly be restored. And it was in the, in the later 17th century they began to re-establish their fortunes, paving the way for the sort of golden age of the aristocracy in the 18th century. When we're talking about the aristocracy here, a question I, I, I didn't uh, address to David because I wanted to mm. move on, but we, if we can consider it now. When we're talking about the aristocracy, we're not just talking about people with titles. It spreads further across society than that, doesn't it? I think it does. I mean, one can take a very narrow view of the aristocracy and say that it's just the peerage which has the advantage that you can do nice neat prosopographical analyses and count the number of dukes or the number of earls and whether they married commoners and how much land they held and you've got a finite group of people but the aristocracy as such was really a much broader group partly because in England the um, her principle of um, hereditary um, of inheritance was partable, um, was, wasn't partable, it was primogeniture. And so the title could only pass to the eldest son rather than to all the offspring of uh, aristocracy. And so you have these large numbers of who, people who are ostensibly commoners but are very closely tied in with a landed elite. And so together these um, comprise a much larger group and you also have a large number of landowners who may not necessarily have a title but have a similar lifestyle and similar wealth and would ally themselves naturally with a titled elite. Is there a sense in which in the second half of the 17th century the aristocrats uh, be became extraordinarily powerful for two reasons? They had not 
chopped off the king's head. They were guiltless of regicide. They were not the people who'd done that. And they were very active in what we like to call the glorious revolution, the bloodless revolution, not quite right, of 1688, but they were instrumental in that. So by the end of the century, they had done a great deal to earn themselves respect as, as a governing elite as well as a landed elite. Yes, I think they made a lot of capital out of that, particularly in the 18th century. And the fact that the levellers and the um, fifth monarchy men and the diggers had called for the abolition of aristocracy enabled them to um, cast anybody who questioned the um, right of the aristocracy to rule in that same light. And they certainly gained um, credit, I think, from the fact that they had been instrumental in bringing about the Glorious Revolution. The invitation to William of Orange came from the mem leading members of the aristocracy. And because the Glorious Revolution turned out the way it did, they were able to consolidate that. And because because William III was a foreigner and an absentee monarch for a large extent, as was George I and George II, and Queen Anne, being a woman, wasn't able to take the same kind of directive role. They, the aristocracy were able to assume a much more prominent place in the government of a nation and were able to establish their place as rulers, the natural rulers, and this becomes a very important part of the sort of um, self-perception of the aristocratic elite, that they are naturally born to govern, and this becomes part of a um, material which they used to criticise George III in the latter part of the 18th century. Philippe Fernandez Amesto, one of the things the British aristocrats did was to pay their taxes, uh, unlike the French and other European aristocracies. Is that, is that something that's significant as far as you're concerned? Well, I think one of the things that makes states effective is their ability to screw taxes out of their subjects. And it's certainly true that when you get aristocracies collaborating with other power centres in states and in the early modern period, that usually means aristocracies collaborating with the crown. Then you get a generally improved state of fiscal effectiveness. And uh, you can very crudely say that the reason why... England isn't a very effective state by the standards of other European monarchies in the 16th and 17th centuries is because you don't have that collaboration and in the 18th century it is effective because you, you do. But I mean, I think we've got to the 18th century rather kind of rapidly, Melvin. I mean, because if you go back to what David was saying, he described really interesting sort of what he calls a nexus which you could express as a kind of linked series of causes, couldn't you? You've got uh, prowess, which is how you, know, you start being an aristocrat. You're good at fighting or a you know, good bully, good thug. That gives you land, because you conquer it, or you're, you're given it as part, you know, you're part of a gang and you conquer a realm and you divide it up in the way Melvin was talking about William the Conqueror dividing up England. So prowess gives you land, land gives you wealth, and wealth gives you power. That's all perfectly understandable. But what's very difficult to fit into this is the hereditary principle, um, you know, which, is, which everybody who's contributed to the programme so far has, has acknowledged is an absolutely vital part of aristocracy. I, I, I would have thought that was the problematic thing. I mean, what one really wants to know is why does this apparently I mean, superficially irrational ingredient get, get added in to the, the others? And why, don't, why doesn't this country and other European countries generally have um, 
a system in which um, power, land, wealth, these things flow more um, openly in um, medieval and, and and modern times, why are they linked to the hereditary principle? I mean, that seems to me to be a really interesting question. Well, I thought but people like you were here to answer it. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the idea, let's take the idea of primogenitor, which was very serious, i.e. everything goes to the eldest son, keeps the estate intact, keeps the title in place, uh, provided you get an eldest son, uh, if you have a son, away you go. Was that a big part of the uh, defining quality of the British aristocracy? Well, I think Rosen was absolutely... Right about that. I mean, to, to me, that's why I, I, you know, one of the great problems of British history compared to that of other European countries is why are the British so fixated about the country? Why has the, the aristocratic landed nexus been so durable um, in this country? Why does it still influence the way people behave? You know, when why are property prices, put it very crudely, you know, it's still ridiculously high in this country compared with other European countries. And uh, I think it is an interesting peculiarity, idiosyncrasy of British history, and I think that uh, Rosemary is right, that it is all to do with primogeniture. In England, you can't, you know, your, your ticket to being an aristocrat is inheriting the, the family um, estates. And if you don't do that, if you were one of these unfortunate younger sons, you can very rapidly, you know, in a generation or two, undergo derogation. Whereas on the continent, on the whole, this doesn't happen. You get a much stronger uh, emphasis on the the, the um, heritability of nobility through blood uh, than you do in, in England. And even in you know, the early modern period, there are lots of poor aristocrats and landless aristocrats in European monarchies. My favourite story is that of a, um, an aristocrat in Ciudad Real in the 17th century. I mean, he, was, his, he had the legal status of an aristocrat. He had the fiscal exemptions which went with it. He had the quarterings on his um, scutcheon. He had no trace of Jew or Moor in his blood. You know, by all the standards of respect in the day, he was an aristocrat. But by profession, he was a boot black. And, you know, that fiscal exemption was enjoyed on the profits of his uh, boot-backing business. Oh, I mean, take an example of Napoleon. You know, is Napoleon an aristocrat and his father's a, um, a lawyer? Well, you know, by the traditions of the monarchy in which he lived at the time, um, he was. But in, in England, being a lawyer would be considered a bourgeois profession and you'd be hard put, you know, to maintain your aristocratic status unless you also acquired land. David, would you like to comment on what's been said there? Yes, I want to put in a word, I think, for the 17th century, and in a sense to try to tie together what Rosemary and Felipe have been saying. They won't approve, I suspect, but I'll have a go. Um, I mean, I do think that the evolution from this essentially warrior caste uh, to this uh, governing class of the 18th century uh, is pivotally accomplished in the 17th century. 17th century Britain pioneers in a way and not aware that it's doing it, or at least England does, notions of revolution. The House of Lords was abolished, something that hasn't happened since. House of Lords was abolished in the mid-17th century, lands confiscated. It looks as though the aristocracy, the military aristocracy's number is up. And yet what, of course, happens, as Rosemary mentioned, is that in the late 17th century they reconstruct themselves and reinvent themselves and re-legitimate themselves very successfully, consequent upon the Restoration in 1660 and the Glorious Revolution of 1688. Not as this military knightly class fighting each other, but now, in a sense, as a national governing elite. And the, so they benefit, in a way, 
from um, the 17th century in a manner that in the mid-17th century could not have been foreseen. And the real loser in the 17th century is the monarchy. So that the rearranged nexus in the 18th century of the crown and the aristocracy is that the aristocracy is now, in a way, a much more powerful partner. And that brings in this new post-chivalric, uh, uh, post-military aristocracy in England, uh, which, as it were, completely recovers their position, which in the middle of the 17th century, at the time of the Civil War, seemed seriously in jeopardy. Whereas, of course, in other European countries, the revolutions come much later, uh, in 1917 or 1789 or whatever, and have a much more devastating effect on the aristocracy than was the case in England. Rosemary. Yes, and the aristocracy in England were certainly very conscious of this comparison with the European nobilities, that they had a much stronger um, presence in government vis-à-vis the monarch than in, for example, Russia or Prussia or even France, where the aristocracy were employed as servants of the crown, but um, certainly didn't enjoy the same kind of um, legislative influence, for example, as they were able to exercise through the House of Lords and through the House of Commons, which, although being aristocrats, they couldn't sit in, they could place their younger sons in, they could place their relatives in, and which they could control indirectly through their influence. And this becomes increasingly marked over the 18th century, that in the course of the century, more and more seats in Parliament are brought under the influence of the aristocracy, and they really consolidate their control over the two houses of Parliament and the Cabinet and dominate the political system. Well, yeah, could you want to comment on that? Well, uh, well, I mean, you know, in spite of David's hope that you know, he'd provoke disagreement, I, I, I'm sorry, I... I just have to concur with you know, my uh, um, fellow panellists. But I, I just wonder whether you wouldn't have a great insight into uh, aristocratic mentality, Melvin, because you sit in the House of Lords and were a peer of the, the realm. You hobnob with a lot of these um, guys on a daily basis, not as many of them as you did before the House of Lords um, reforms. I mean, now that the, you know, this land power nexus no longer exists, certainly you know, not in anything like the way it did in the period um, that David and Rosemary have been talking about. Do you think that aristocrats have re-evaluated the way they think about themselves? Do they now have a more continental way of, um, of seeing themselves? Have they shifted back to thinking about um, heredity, about the uh, you know, nobility of blood now that um, they're more in the position of um, you know, rural oberos and younger sons in the early modern period? I'm not going to... I don't contribute my own experience to this programme. I try to sort of get other people's views and that's the deal. Uh, uh, sorry, I don't mean to be rude, but I'm not going in that direction. David, can we talk more about the idea of land? Mm. Uh, Felipe uh, touched on it very strongly in his opening remarks a few minutes ago. Uh, we have a landed gentry. Mm. We, we've got these remarkable figures, 700-odd people owning three-quarters of land, yeah. that sort of, those sort of staggering facts. And the land became massively important. Um, what, did it, what did it give? And, and they were they out-monarch monarchs, didn't mm. they? They were richer <laughs> and so on. Yep. That one of them. So um, can we just go into that a bit mm. more deeply? Well, the key to this, of course, is that we're talking here about uh, pre-industrial economies, uh, and pre-industrial economies are, by definition, largely, not exclusively, but largely agricultural economies. So agriculture is the key mode of production, um, and agriculture therefore provides the largest and, of course, most permanent form of wealth uh, in land. 
So that that's the sense uh, in which land is so crucial that in pre-industrial economies, land is the most significant economic asset and therefore, of course, the most significant form of wealth. So the more of the land you have, the more of that you have. And one of the things we haven't mentioned here which connects with this is, of course, we are talking about hugely unequal societies here. That is to say where the majority of people are very poor, very badly educated, have little direct or even indirect power. So if you own large chunks of land, that gives you an enormous amount of wealth, um, and from wealth... Uh, you are able to get a decent education, you're likely to live longer, you'll be healthier, you will ride horses, you will live in great houses, um, and through the House of Lords and the House of Commons, this will give you a direct input into governing the country. And so land underpins all of that, and even as late as the middle of the 19th century, something like 7,000 families in Great Britain owned two-thirds of the land of this country. And so that gave them an enormous amount of power and influence and prestige. And even although by then, of course, the Industrial Revolution had been going for 100 years, um, that ownership of land still carried with it by then a wholly disproportionate amount of wealth and power and status. It conferred that on the owners. And they began to move in because it, it's interesting to remember, which you brought to the attention of the discussion, that in the aristocracy was abolished. So we had a period where mm. they were... Uh, and then they reconstructed mm. themselves very, very quickly and yeah. put themselves in a themselves completely differently within the state. But I would suggest, Rosemary, perhaps even more powerfully than ever before. And in the 18th century, they move into London particularly with their own palaces and with great, the great London houses built of the, the, the great families, the Devonshires and the Cavendishes. They take over squares, the Onslows and that, and they just take the place on. Uh, and they compete, they vie with, they can look down on the palace of the monarch, uh, monarch himself or herself. Yes, well, they don't just move in, they create London, they create the West End, and the, before the 18th century, the centre of London and the most um, fashionable area had been around the Strand, and, um, in the, but in the um, 18th century, it moves west to the development of a West End, which was land which was owned by the aristocracy, and they develop this area because of its proximity to Westminster and to Parliament. And so you get a new centre of gravity within London and a whole new cultural and social life which is being developed around the fashionable West End of London and so the, and the aristocracy are building their townhouses. They're not palaces like you'd get in the continental capitals that uh, very few of the houses which the aristocracy live in are actually sort of detached large palaces. They construct these very elegant terraces around squares which we're familiar with still today despite the damage which has been inflicted by um, modern development and they develop these areas of London which are specifically designed for the kind of social networking and um, social life which lies behind the basis of this political elite that not only is it an elite which is very powerful because of its basis in land but it's very powerful I think because of its social cohesion and the common cultural um, identity and the common ethos which is developed through the same this perennial round of activities through the London season and also through the educational system as well. That these are all people who've gone through the same handful of public schools, the same experience of Oxford or Cambridge and the Grand Tour, and then they come and they congregate in London and they have this um, 
by the end of its century, very hectic kind of social life where everybody has to be in London for the season until it gets too hot and too smelly and unpleasant and they will disperse back to their country estates. But as David pointed out in one of his articles or books, I can't remember now, which the inter- literal interrelationship in the British aristocracy, the marrying mm. into each other's families, did create a very big... Co- in what way, uh, Philippe, uh, are we towards the end of the 18th century? Are, do we have an aristocratic... Uh, mass in this country, which is markedly different from that in other European countries? Well, I think so, yes. I mean, you know, the, the reason uh, I asked you my impertinent question and Mames gave it wasn't, you know, I mean, I was, it wasn't just a polite attempt to bring you into a conversation from which I feel you are often honourably, you know, too self-excluded. Uh, you know, there was a serious point here, which is obviously a point about how far you need to have the nexus that David describes, in particular that connection with the land in order to have an aristocracy, in order for the concept to be meaningful and to survive. And it does seem that, uh, you know, one of the peculiarities of the English aristocracy is that you do rather more need that nexus in this country than elsewhere. And, I, you know, you could ask a very interesting question about the d- description of the aristocracy that Rosemary has given us for the 18th century. Why didn't the English aristocracy turn into something more like a, uh, a Western European urban aristocracy? Because obviously in Eastern Europe, the situation was very different, where you had a completely different kind of social and economic um, context in which uh, land and, uh, and blood were, were, were both very powerful elements in the aristocratic ethos. That wasn't the case in, in Western Europe. And one wonders why... In, uh, in England, the aristocracy didn't become more um, urbanised than it did. Why, was it, uh, why did it remain um, focused on its uh, rural responsibilities and its, its rural um, wealth? And, I, you know, that's where I, 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 I do see uh, the, this peculiar feature of the English aristocracy subsisting. I, I suppose that... You know, the element which might be relevant here, which hasn't cropped up so far in the conversation, which I, I think has been rather absent from the scholarship in general, is that there, there could be a, you know, a demographic um, principle at work here. One of the curious things about the aristocracy in the late Middle Ages and the early modern period is its amazingly rapid turnover. You know, families die out with extraordinary... Uh, rapidity, really, when you consider these are the most privileged people in society and you expect them to be the best fed and, the, and the, 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 the most protected from disease and stuff, you'd expect them, really, to be more demographically viable, to have greater longevity and greater fertility than they really do seem to have. And in the 18th century, certainly in this country, that does seem to change. You've got, I mean, a, perhaps as part of a general social development, general demographic pattern, the aristocracy are much more successful in living a long time, breeding successfully. And I think that helps to keep their, um, their links with their past going. The great stately homes uh, that they were built at this time, Bledin Palace, for instance, and Castle Howard and Holcombe Hall, what do they signify, David Canada? Well, we are clearly in the late 17th and uh, yeah. 18th century here as we head uh, rapidly towards the present and the future. Um, and uh, one of the things that it is important to notice, consequent upon the Whig Revolution of 1688, is that a particular group of families, the great Whig families who were in some senses the architect of that revolution, do very well out of it. Many of them get titles. Many of the great dukedoms of, say, Bedford uh, or Marlborough uh, or Devonshire are related to that episode through until the early uh, 18th century. And one of the signs of their newfound sense of confidence 
elegance and grandeur is a great spate of building, Blenheim Palace being one example, the modification and extensions of Chatsworth being another, Woburn yet another, Castle Howard, these great uh, 18th century or late 17th century Whig palaces which were constructed as monuments uh, to this group of people who had in a sense brought about the glorious revolution of 1688. But as Felipe said, and it's one of the great tricks that the, the English and British aristocracy have often been able to pull, the appeal to antiquity, to a continuous lineage, is enormously important in all quote-unquote traditional societies. Venerability confers somehow authority. But much of the supposed venerability of the English-British aristocracy is fake. That is to say, things go through a female line, estates change hands, but it's all concealed. They change their names, they add names on, they acquire other people's ancestors and stick the portraits in their own family hall. So there's a whole cult, very often, of fake continuity. Um, you know, these weak palaces in the mid-18th century were no more venerable than Centre Point just down the road is now. And yet they appear to embody a whole set of traditional, historic qualities and virtues, many of which were completely phony, but they got away with it. Can we use this point, Rosemary, to describe... Uh, a lot of people might think they know this, and so it's maybe obvious, but it's useful to say, so what sort of style were they... Uh, creating for their own society and therefore, to a certain extent, uh, impressing the rest of society with and perhaps impressing it on the rest of society. They were building, they were collecting, they were travelling and they were, not in, they were spending money rather than making money. Can we go on from there? Yes, well, a large part of the aristocratic lifestyle had always been one of conspicuous consumption because it was by consumption that you demonstrated your wealth and your status. And so it had always been an important part of um, aristocratic living to live well, to live generously. And part of the aristocratic ethos had been hospitality, that these were the people who had and therefore... Their, part of their ethos was to give to those who had not. And so you have this sort of idea of um, hospitality and um, welcoming people, all strangers to the house, which was carried on in an attenuated fashion in the 18th century of aristocratic public days where people would come to Chatsworth or wherever and would be fed and would see, um, see around the house. And there's also this idea that the aristocracy were innately superior, as you mentioned at the start, they were the best and they had a role to play in society in cultivating taste, in developing society's taste and so the um, Earl of Pembroke would go off on the Grand Tour and would bring back his collection of classical statues and they would be put in Wilton House and the public would be allowed to come and visit or um, Robert Walpole would build up his collection of paintings and these would be regarded as not just Walpole's collection but something which belonged to the nation at large and in fact there was outcry in the 1770s when it was proposed to sell these to Catherine the Great, that this was something which was um, belonged to the nation. So the aristocracy, I think, are very clever at presenting their own tastes, their own preferences and their own collections or houses as not just something which celebrates themselves and which benefits themselves, but something which improves the rest of the nation, which is of benefit to the rest of the nation. And when Elgin brings back the Elgin mar marbles, what he's saying is that he's bringing these back in order to provide models to improve prove the taste of the nation, that he wants them to be on display for the nation to see. Do you see, Philippa, just a moment, and then I'll come to you, David, do you see this aristocratic uh, style, let's call it so, aristocratic uh, way of, of living as impressing itself very deeply into the British way of doing things? Oh, sure, yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, the, in other words, it wasn't the, yeah. just a, a thin layer at the top. Oh, well, I think it was a thin layer at the, the 
top that it was uh, um, permeable in the sense that these values could percolate through it and and transform the rest of society. And I, I mean, I think that you know, the, all those uh, jokes in Gilbert and Sullivan about how the English you know, love their house of peers, the English love uh, a lord. There's something in that, and the aristocracy in this country have had tremendous, I mean, disproportionate influence on um, on taste. And I mean, the very fact that um, you know, people still, when they think they've made a bit of money or are clawing their way up society, still affect an aristocratic, traditional aristocratic lifestyle. They still go out and you know, buy their, their land, even if it's only a patch of garden around their, their bungalow. And I, I, I do think that's a symptom of a long-standing you know, kind of uh, relationship of admiration on the part of the, the British and their, and their aristocracy. But, I mean, I do think that what Rosemary and David have just said are getting us close to what it is about aristocracies that can equip them to survive change, can equip them to survive economic transformations, can enable a concept of an aristocracy to endure even when that landed nexus has crumbled. And that's this collective myth. You know, I mean, I think that's what you, 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 you need. And aristocracies are like other groups, other classes uh, in this respect to... To survive, they need to be able to identify themselves and identify one another. And for that, you need some kind of collective badge of identity. You need some set of values to which you all subscribe, which are instantly verifiable in mutual conversation. The things that you know, Rosemary has mentioned, like this you know, generosity and largesse and having a responsibility for education, those are parts, respectively, of very, very old, very ancient aristocratic myths of generosity, the largesse. That you know, goes back to this chivalric myth that... David mentioned right at the beginning of the, the <coughs> programme, terribly important in perpetuating aristocratic um, identity. We think of those Victorian gentlemen crammed, creaking into their armour for mock tournaments, but it was just as much of a myth when it began in the Middle Ages. I mean, you know, aristocrats really didn't conform to chivalric behaviour, but they affected uh, this chivalric behaviour and the, the education um, element that was mentioned part of another, not quite such an old aristocratic myth, at least not in, in this country. It goes back, I think, to the Renaissance and the idea that, that education can ennoble you as well as arms. Can I just come in here? Because you would have thought that the Industrial Revolution would have shaken the aristocracy. We were talking on this programme a few weeks ago about the Lunar Society and the influence it had, and there was not a title among them, those who belonged to the Lunar Society. And yet, the fact is that it seemed... as it, it, it sailed through the late 18th century, way into the 19th century, not only unscathed, but uh, uh, plumped out in wealth, partly because of mineral rights that they got from under their land, the Lowthers up in Cumberland got the mineral rights mm. of the coal and the iron ore and such and such, and that was replicated all over the country. So, would you say that the Industrial Revolution had no effect on this, 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 this power, this governing nexus of any significance whatsoever, David? No, I mean, in the long run, clearly the Industrial Revolution is transformative because it, it, it brings into being a whole new way of running an economy and of generating wealth, which is built around industry rather than land. And so in the long run, that creates a whole new economic structure which increasingly marginalises, think of the, the, the countryside march recently, which increasingly marginalises agriculture and that whole nexus which lies at the heart and root, literally, uh, of aristocracy. And it brings with it the working classes, the middle classes, big cities, 
guarantees and ultimately democracy, education for all, equality to the extent that we have it and so on. And all of that, in a sense, in the very long run, is inimical to aristocracy. But in the short run, by which I mean from, let us suppose, 1780 to 1880, the aristocracy do extremely well because a large part of the first phase of the Industrial Revolution, as you've already suggested, involves doing things to the land, taking minerals from underneath it, building houses on top of it, building ports on the edge of it, building canals through it, laying railways over it. And if you own the land, which these people by definition do, then this early phase of industrial advance, to a very considerable extent, involves generating new forms of wealth from this land, uh, which these people own, so that the greatest uh, 19th century magnates, uh, if one thinks of the Dukes of Westminster, the Dukes of Bedford, the Dukes of Devonshire, are by then so super rich, not just because they own a lot of agricultural land, but because in the case of the Duke of Westminster, they own all of Mayfair and Belgravia. In the case of the Duke of Devonshire, they own Barrow in Furness and Eastbourne. Uh, and in the case of the Duke of Bedford, because they own Bloomsbury. And so in the short run, by which I mean a good hundred years, and for the aristocracy, of course, that is the short run, in the short run, they do extremely well. So well, indeed, that when Queen Victoria goes to a party at Stafford House owned by the Dukes of Sutherland, she says to the Duchess, I have come from my house to your palace. And that's an indication of how things were. And we're talking here of the 1840s and 50s. Can we say the mid-19th century, Rosemary, mid-19th uh, mid century, is that, is, that, is, that, is that some sort of high watermark uh, for the aristocracy? Could we define that before we uh, rattle through <laughs> uh, <coughs> the decline? Um, in some senses, it's a high watermark, as David suggested, in terms of their absolute wealth. But in terms of their cultural dominance, I think the aristocracy are no longer, their influence is no longer so absolute in that the challenge to aristocracy has already been expressed with considerable force. In the 18th century, it's very rare to find the institution of aristocracy challenged, um, not least because people are worried about conjuring up memories of the Civil War and the abolition of the House of Lords. But it's not until the late 18th century that you actually get a challenge to the... Um, institution of aristocracy as such. It's with um, people like Thomas Paine and it's precipitated largely in the years of the French Revolution that you have the, this onslaught upon the aristocracy and then the political critique of the early 19th century leading up to political reform where you have people like Thomas Oldfield and John Wade, author of the Black Book, who are actually detailing the level of corruption of the aristocracy and how many seats they control in Parliament and how much money they're draining from the state in terms of the and how much land they've disappropriated and from the peasants and have enclosed to make their grandiose parks and to build their houses. And so in the early 19th century, we're actually getting uh, a, quite a radical critique of aristocracy. And the towns are growing as well. I think that's another crucial factor, that the primacy of land as a source of wealth and the primacy of landed influence is being challenged by the influence of towns. You've got the huge towns of Manchester, Manchester, Liverpool, um, Birmingham, which are rivaling the um, influence in the political realm of the aristocracy. And so although in terms of wealth they're still enormously influential, I don't think you could call it the high point. David, you put the decline as beginning in the 1880s. Could you tell us briefly why, and then we'll try to have summaries as to where you think the decline of the aristocracy, which undoubtedly happened in terms of power, not so much well, uh, where it has taken us? 
Well, <clears throat> the declining aristocracy is like the rising middle class. You can always find a point where it's happening, um, and I certainly agree with Rosemary that uh, her account of the early 19th century seems to me wholly convincing. And I chose to begin it in the 1880s because I thought one had to start somewhere, and I suppose I was mostly interested in the rather long story of decline in the 20th century, and it seemed to me that that particular episode of decline could be dated... Uh, in the last quarter of the 19th century. That's partly because of the agricultural depression, which undermines even more than industry, in a way, the notion of landed wealth and values. It was partly because of the Third Reform Act, which didn't make this country a democracy, but which certainly gave the vote to a large number of people than ever before. It's also, and again, it's Rosemary's point, as it were, forwarded by about eight decades, that the 1880s does see a set of popular challenges to the aristocracy, especially in Ireland, but also in Britain as well. It sees the reform of local government, which lessens their power in the countryside. So that seemed to me to, to suggest, uh, this is the period when Gladstone says, all over the world the battle is between the masses and the classes and he'll back the masses every time. Well, that's a bit premature, but there is a sense by the late 19th century that the themes that Rosemary was mentioning about popular dislike of the aristocracy do become much more real, much more important and much more influential and become, as it were, the influential narrative for the rest of the 19th century and the whole of the 20th. Philippe, is the... the, the is there the idea of the British aristocracy being anti-intellectual? Uh, is that a myth or do you think that's a reality and do you think it was the inter there was an intellectual challenge to it which was very, uh, very strong? I think it, you, you, know, you could draw a contrast between the British aristocracy and other Western European aristocracies in these terms because the British aristocracy is more rural, less urban and is therefore self-exiled from a lot of centres of culture. But I, I, I don't think it's fair to say that the, um, the aristocracy is uh, genuinely anti-intellectual traditionally in this country. On the contrary, I mean, although you were right that there were no... Uh, aristocrats amongst the lunatics of Birmingham. You know, there were a lot of um, uh, aristocratic savants, even in England in the 18th century. You know, I mean, that's why an orrery is called an orrery. It's off the Earl of Orrery. Um, and uh, aristocrats have always been you know, important patrons of learning since the, the Renaissance, since this rehabilitation of education as one of the defining features of someone who's genuinely of noble character and noble qualities. But, I mean, I think that... Um, Although, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to dissent from what David and Rosemary have said, I, I do think it's important to remember that the, the, although the, there's this political critique of the aristocracy in the 19th century in this country, which Rosemary describes, and although there's that collapse of the, the land power nexus in the um, 1880s to which David draws our attention, I don't think that necessarily means that the cultural influence of the aristocracy doesn't abide beyond and endure beyond those, those thresholds. I think that's proved remarkably um, robust and has only really um, become attenuated in a relatively recent period when the aristocracy themselves have really abandoned the effort to influence public taste and have themselves uh, uh, incorporated in, uh, you know, in a new kind of pluralism. David, would you agree with that? Well, I wanted to say that I think there are two separate things here. I, I, I don't think the aristocracy have been, as it were, particularly for or against intellectuals. I mean, they did, after all, produce Lord Rayleigh, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics, and Bertrand Russell, who wasn't exactly dim, to put it mildly. So that uh, I think that whether the aristocracy is anti-intellectual or not isn't quite the issue. I think 
The separate issue is how far <clears throat> we have come to live in the 20th century in a liberal, democratic Western world, which may not assume that all people are created equal, but which certainly assumes notions of equality and merit, which are wholly inimical to aristocratic notions of inequality and hereditary and the passing on of hereditary positions of power. Uh, and it does seem to me that those arguments, as it were, whether right or wrong, are the prevalent arguments of the Western liberal democratic world in which we now live. And in that world, the notion of transferring wealth or transferring power uh, of a narrow elite which is there because it's there and it doesn't need to be justified is no longer viable. And the final evidence of that was the removal of the majority of the hereditary peers from the House of Lords four or five years ago. One could argue, I think, that that's the most significant event in terms of the transformation and marginalisation of the aristocracy we've been talking about. Thank you all very much, and uh, thank you for uh, taking a hold of that honour in such a short time. Thanks to Rosemary Sweet, David Canadine, and Felipe Fernandez Amesto, and thanks to you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science, and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4.